This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we are continuing to walk through our series, Taste and See, And what we're doing in these weeks leading up to Easter is we're looking at the ministry of Jesus with the background of these texts that involve a meal, food, and drink. And of course, it's all about tasting of him, seeing Jesus, savoring Jesus as we focus on the person of Christ in these weeks leading up to Easter. So let's look this morning at Luke 10 and verses 38 through 42. So thankful for our worship team and the job they do every Sunday. We are so blessed with the the music here. So thankful for our audiovisual team. They were up here a good chunk of the day uh, yesterday just just working on what they do. So much goes into what we experience in worship every Sunday. A lot of it's behind the scenes and uh, a lot of practice and so so thankful for just everyone, the whole team that's involved in it, um, we're, we're just so blessed here um, at First Baptist. So thankful for our, our new uh, sound system. The music has such a, a clear, a smooth uh, sound, and, and our, our audio, our, our new screens, uh, it's, it's a lot to be thankful for. Well, let's look this morning uh, at Luke 10. What we're talking about today is simplifying your life. Do you ever feel like life has gotten too complex? Like you're trying to do too much? Too much of a hurry? I think in our culture, um, we all deal with that. And this is a text really that, that can give us some help. Jesus is the most brilliant person who ever lived, the most wise person who ever lived. And we see his wisdom here in this text about how to simplify our lives. Luke 10, and let's look at verses 38 and following. This is a passage you might have heard about before, but it should come with a warning label attached because it's often misinterpreted, and we're going to talk about why as we go through today. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who, was, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the word that we've just read. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the wonderful things that are in this text, and that we might apply them. Give us the grace to apply them. We pray that you would help us to, to see how to, to put this into our living. This is a practical text that really just deals with, with something that we, we can wrestle with 
every day and the issue of priorities. And so we pray now that you would speak to us right where we need it as we give you our undivided attention. We pray that you would speak to us in the power of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, which is a great little book about spiritual disciplines, uh, John Ortberg is the pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Northern California. Um, Ortberg has a chapter in The Life You've Always Wanted about the practice of slowing, the practice of eliminating hurry from our lives. And, And he talks about hurry sickness in that chapter. And he gives some symptoms of what he calls hurry sickness. Now see if any of these things resonate with you. As you're approaching a stoplight, do you find yourself doing a quick analysis, not only of the number of cars that are in each lane, but the type of cars that are in each lane? And you automatically try to get in the lane behind the cars that can accelerate the fastest. I've done that since I was 16 years old. Okay? Quick analysis, don't want to get behind the slow ones. Um, in the checkout line at the grocery store, do you find yourself not only choosing the line with the less people, but also doing a quick analysis of the number of items in the carts in front of you? And when you make your choice, do you find yourself glancing over at the lines that you could have chosen? You know, just to see if they're getting, if, 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 those, if the person that would have been you in the other line, if they get out of the store fast, do you feel kind of deflated? Do you find yourself constantly multitasking, constantly trying to do more than one thing at a time? Do you find yourself collecting articles and books that you feel you should read but aren't making time to read? Do you buy gadgets that are supposed to save you time, but you don't take the time to read the instructions for the gadgets, so they don't save all that much time. Speaking of gadgets... Um, Time Magazine reports that that back in the early 60s, before uh, a Senate subcommittee, experts in time management gave testimony, and they looked at the decades ahead. And of course, they couldn't project the iPhone or the Internet at that point. But they they figured that some things were going to be coming that could really save people a lot of time. And this is the early 60s. These time management experts told Congress, they said, listen, the problem is in the future, in the 21st century, is going to be that these people are going to have too much time on their hands. You know, they're not going to be busy enough. I mean, they're not going to know what to do with all of the discretionary time that they're going to have. Well, you know, imagine if they could have foreseen the Internet or the iPhone. I mean, they would have really been concerned about you know, what we would do with all the extra time that we could have. But, but of course, we know that every study today tells us that we have far less time. People are far more busy than they were in the early 1960s. And what's up with that? What's, what causes this? Well, this isn't just a 21st century problem. This has always been a problem. This is a first century problem. And we can see it in this text And we see the solution that Jesus gives. Let's talk about the setting 
of this text. In verse 38, it says, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Now, this was the village of Bethany. Bethany was a little village on the slope of the Mount of Olives, right outside the city of Jerusalem. In fact, whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem doing ministry, he would stay in the village of Bethany. And he would stay at the home of three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John 11, of course, Lazarus becomes sick and dies. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But these were three siblings. Their parents are never mentioned, which is probably an indication that they were both deceased. And so these are all three. They seem to be single, young adults, three siblings. Uh, They're all together, and they were like family to Jesus. They were like, Mary and Martha were like two little sisters to him. Uh, Lazarus was like a little brother to him. And when you see the conversation, the, the, the interaction between these three people, both in John 11 and here, you get an idea. They relate to one another like we do in families. They, they converse like family members would converse. Very open with, with one another. Um, and so Jesus is close, very close to these three people. Let's talk about the context here. What, what has happened just before this incident? Jesus has told one of his most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, of course, is about acting in love. It's about doing. You had the other people that might have talked about love and said that they believed in love, But when they saw the man who was hurt and bleeding on the side of the road, they didn't act in love. They passed by on the other side. But the least likely person of all, the Samaritan, he went over, he ministered to the person who was hurt. He he took them up, he took them to an an inn and just made sure that they were going to be provided for. And Jesus said, this man was the true neighbor in this situation. So that parable that Jesus has just finished telling, it's about what? It's about action. It's about, it's about uh, love in action, okay? Now, I say that because for centuries this text has been misapplied. People have tended to see this text as a text that shows the, the superiority of sort of a contemplative life versus that of a life of action. In fact, for, for, for centuries, really, this text was used to, as a promotion for monasticism. You know, Mary was seen as sort of a, uh, a model for the monastic life. You kind of pull away from the world, a life of contemplation and, and study, and, 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 and that that's somehow superior to a life of action. Okay, that's not what's going on here. Jesus has just finished telling this parable, which is all about action. What he is saying here, and the point that is to be made, is that our doing must flow from being. Our doing flows from being a disciple. Our service for God flows from a life of seeking God. 
our work for God flows from a life of worship of God. Those are the things that we see here, and they're things that we, we need to hear. Let's kind of profile the three people in this little story. First of all, there's Martha. Now, she's probably the oldest of the three siblings. You get that feeling. She's kind of maternal in her actions. Uh, in verse 38, it says that a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Well, it was Mary and Lazarus' house too, but it, it singles out Martha. She's prob- probably the oldest of the three. And, and if the parents had died during their childhood, Martha, as the oldest sibling, was thrust into that role really as a mom. And you kind of get that feeling uh, about her. You get the feeling that she's what we would call a type A personality. She's task-oriented. She's not, you, you never have to wonder what she's feeling. Pretty much puts it out there, you know, what she's, what she's feeling. Um, John 11 kind of gives us a, a flavor of Martha's personality. The setting here in John 11 is that Lazarus has died, and Jesus is coming into Bethany. And, of course, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus, at this point, that hasn't happened yet. Jesus is just entering Bethany And it says this about Martha. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now that that tells us about Mary. Those three verses tell us all about Martha, rather. Um, she's, She's asserted. Mary stays back in the house. Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And then when she sees Jesus, she just kind of puts it out there. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But you see her love for Jesus and her faith in Jesus in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so that's a profile of, of, of Martha. Um, let's take a look at, at Mary. Like her sister Martha, Mary loves Jesus. And even though she seems to have been more laid back in her personality, she shows her love for Christ in a couple of extraordinary ways. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus is preparing for the Passion Week, he's at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and John 12 tells us about this extraordinary event very similar, very similar to the, the incident that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Luke 7, where the prostitute uh, came and an, anointed Jesus. M- Mary does that. Mary comes out. She's got this expensive, incredibly expensive uh, ointment. And she comes out and she uh, breaks it open, anoints Jesus. And like the prostitute, she, uh, she wipes tears from his, uh, his feet with her, her hair and... Uh, it was such an incredible financial sacrifice that Mary was reprimanded by Judas. So this money could have been taken and used for the, the poor. But Jesus uh, commends her for what she had done because her motive was pure. She was just showing her love for Christ. And, and to her, she didn't even regard it as this huge sacrifice because she regarded Christ as her treasure. 
And we see Mary's great love for Jesus in this text as well. There's something going on here that's kind of, it's very apparent, especially when you study Middle Eastern culture. But part of the tension that's probably going on here is that Mary is in a setting and in a place that, that women in first century Middle Eastern culture did not usually go. In Middle Eastern homes, uh, in the first century especially, to some degree even today, um, the homes had very clear spaces for uh, men and for women. And in the, the public room, which is where this would have taken place, that was the room where the men would gather and they would discuss things like this. And if there was a prominent rabbi in town, it would be the men that would be uh, uh, sitting there and talking with him. Mary is in that male space and Jesus does not reprimand her for it. Jesus commends her for being in that place and, and doing what she's doing. But that was probably part of the tension that was going on because she's not in the kitchen, which was traditionally a female space in a Middle Eastern home in the first century. She's, she's over there in the, the public room that was usually regarded for men. And not only is she in that room, but what's she doing? It says she sat at Jesus' feet. That's what you were doing if you were, if you were a, a learner, a disciple. In Acts 22, it's, Paul says that, that, he says, I was educated in Tarsus, and I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was saying there, you know, I was educated at the feet of this great rabbi Gamaliel. When they said they, were, they sat at the feet of, that, that, was, that was talking about they were being educated. They were, they, were, they were learning to go and do. Now see, this is a radical elevation of the role of women, the, the value of, of, of women for, uh, as, as, as disciples, as, as people who could do ministry. Jesus brings all of this into play that, uh, as far as women that it had not been done before. I mean, it was new. It was radical. And, and it was producing some tension. So that's part of what's going on here as well with, with Mary. I mean, she's got this extraordinary love for Jesus and a desire to, uh, to learn and then go and share what she's, what she's learning. We see Martha, we see Mary, but then we see this majestic portrait of Jesus. I want to see four things that really formed this incredible portrait of Jesus in this text. First of all, his gentleness. I mean, look at how he handles Martha. Verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And so, first of all, she asks a rather impertinent question, Lord, do you not care? And then she follows up that question with an order. Tell my sister to help me. I mean, she's really out of line. But how does Jesus deal with her? Such gentleness. Such tenderness. And Jesus says to her in verse 41, Martha, Martha, and the, and the double use of her name there, that, that, was, that was tenderness. Gentleness. You know, 
Martha, Martha, you, you, you are troubled, anxious and troubled about many things. I mean, he's being so tender and gentle with her. You know, Proverbs 15:1 says, "A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger." And Jesus here is just modeling that. And we see his gentleness. Second, we see his compassion. Because not only does he treat Martha with gentleness, but look, look at his sensitivity and his compassion for the way that she's feeling. Verse 41 again. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I mean... Jesus just has the compassion to, to basically, I mean, he validates how she's feeling here, doesn't he? He says, look, I, I, I can see, you're, you're out of sorts. You're out of sorts with me, you're out of sorts with your sister, you're out of sorts with yourself. I mean, he says, look, I, I, can, see, I can see you're anxious and troubled. Well, what does that do? When he treats her that, that prepares her to listen. To what he's about to say. People will not listen to us if, unless they know that we love them. And Jesus is so, showing such love and tenderness and compassion for her, although she's not shown, she's showing anger towards him, that, that now Martha is prepared to listen to his wisdom. And we need to listen to his wisdom. So what is Jesus telling us here? First of all, we, we see his wisdom about performance, about performance. Martha wanted things done right. She was practicing hospitality, which is a great thing, a commendable thing. Um, but a good thing can become a bad thing if, if our attitude is not right. And she, she, she wants things done, done right. In a way, that's commendable too. I mean, yes, we want to strive for excellence, but... Who is pressuring her to get everything right? Who's pressuring her, you know, to have everything right, the perfect meal, all of that? Is, is Jesus putting her under pressure? Martha is putting Martha under pressure, right? She's not getting pressured from Jesus. You get the feeling Jesus would have been perfectly content with something very simple, um, especially if it meant that he could spend more quality time with, with her. He would, have, he would have loved it if she was sitting there at his feet just like Mary. No, she's, she's not getting pressured from, from Jesus. Really, she's doing this to herself. And see, we, we have to be very careful you know, that even when we're doing good things to, to, to serve the Lord, we have to make sure that it's about Him and not about us. Make sure that it's about Him and not about you. You get the feeling maybe, maybe some of Martha has crept into Martha's service here instead of just a focus on, on Jesus and, and, and what he would want. In our culture, listen, there's a word here for us because beware the performance trap. Dallas Willard wrote The Spirit of the Disciplines, Renovation of the Heart. Those are great books on the on. Uh, devotional life, spiritual disciplines, and so forth. He died of cancer a year or two ago. And shortly before his death, he spoke to 
thousands of students, mainly college students, 20-somethings at the Catalyst Conference. And Dallas Willard sat there with all of his experience and wisdom on that stage with these, these young people just ready to go out and tackle life. And Dallas Willard said this. He said, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters is the person you become. That's not what our culture usually tells us, is it? What does our culture say? Perform! Perform or else! Perform or there will be consequences. Perform or you will be punished. Tully and Trevigian, Billy Graham's grandson, written a great little book called One Way Love. And Tully and, uh, says this about the mentality of our culture today. He says, for every if you do, there's an if you don't. For every promise of reward, there's a threat of punishment. If the job isn't done right, no one gets paid. If you don't live up to his expectations, he'll dump you. If you refuse to give us what we want, we'll yell and scream and make your life difficult. If she doesn't say she's sorry, you'll bear a grudge. If you don't exercise regularly and eat well, you'll gain weight. If you can't see how much this means to me, I'll resent you. Round and round it goes, but the underlying message is always the same. Accomplishment precedes acceptance. Achievement precedes approval. What does the gospel say to this? Does not the gospel of Jesus Christ say the opposite? Does not the gospel say that God accepts you as his child based not on your performance, but on the performance of Jesus for you? God accepts us as his beloved sons and daughters based not upon our record, which is mixed at best. He accepts us as his children based on the perfect record of Jesus. The record of Christ, the perfect record of Christ, his death for our sins on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. He accepts us on the basis of what Christ has done. In Christianity, it's the opposite. Acceptance precedes accomplishment. We understand that we're accepted by God first, and then what does that do? When we understand grace, when we understand that we are already His on the basis of what Jesus has done, what is the reflex of our heart? It's love. And we desire to obey Him and to serve Him, not in order to gain His acceptance, because we already have it. We desire to love and obey Him because we already are accepted. And we're blown away by the love of Christ. I mean, this, is, this is exactly what 1 John 4.19 is teaching. We love, why? Because he first loved us. The gospel really delivers us from this performance trap. You know, unfortunately, even in the Christian community, I mean, I, I see this all the time. Um, because we can evaluate people in the Christian community based on such worldly exterior things. You know, we, in America especially, I mean, we have Christian celebrities. You know, famous preachers or authors or musicians or whatever. Okay, 
why, and, and, and creating kind of a Christian celebrity culture, what are, we, what are we really rewarding? Are we rewarding to commitment to Christ or achievement in the eyes of the world? What about missionaries who have served, served in obscurity for years with, with very little visible fruit? It would seem to me <laughs> that people like that are the real heroes in God's eyes, okay? Um, because what does God value the most? Does God value our character the most or what we do the most? Well, Romans 8.29 tells us this is his purpose. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. It seems to me that God is far more concerned with the quality of our character than the quantity of our accomplishments and the things that the world is going to applaud. Now, when we get caught in a performance trap, what do we tend to do? We tend to stress. We tend to worry. We tend to make comparisons. We tend to compare ourselves to other people. Either we tend to think, oh, this person, they're getting ahead. Look at them. Look at their career, whatever. Yeah, they're, 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 they're getting beyond me. I'm lagging behind. Oh, no, what am I going to do? Or we can look at people, like in this situation, Martha looks at Mary and says, she's not doing enough. Look at them. Look at all I'm doing. They're not doing as much. We start to make comparisons between us and other people instead of what? Instead of keeping our focus on Jesus. And that's what he brings us back to now. He brings us back to that singular focus, that God-centered focus. We see his wisdom about performance. Second, his wisdom about priorities. About priorities. Let's look at verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, that word portion, Jesus is using a play on words. Jesus, they're in the context of this meal, right? Martha's been busy preparing this meal. And Jesus is saying here, look, Mary's chosen the best dish, the best portion, the best meal, because the best meal for her at this point is to be doing exactly what she's doing, and, and that is feasting on my word. Alistair Begg says that this, this text is really about the priority of the word of God for the child of God. The priority of the Word of God for the child of God. We need the Word of God. We need it the way an automobile needs fuel. We need it the way the body needs water and food. We need the Word of God. We need it privately. Are you taking time to sit at the feet of the Savior each day? We can't be legalistic about when we do that. Our body chemistry is 
different. Our schedules are different. Um, the issue is not when. The issue is if. Are you taking time to pull away and get before him each day? When we get real busy, one of the first things to go is time with God. But I want to tell you something. The truth of the matter is that you and I are too busy not to take that time in prayer and in the Word of God. Because when we do, lots of the things that are consuming our time, God just tends to take care of lots of things. He does. And when we take time to bring things before Him, I mean, we get clarity on things and we just begin to experience God intervening in our lives. You know, but it really flows from a walk with Him. I mean, we, we need to be taking time, just our time, our private time with the Lord, just setting that as a priority because, and then letting the rest of life flow, through, flow from that. We need the Word of God privately. We need it publicly. Is the public worship of God something that you look forward to eagerly each week? Or is it something that, well, we may, we may go. Nothing else is happening. If everything else in, in, is right, if a whole series of things fall in the line, you know, we'll be there. Um, or is worship something that, I mean, you're praying for? You spend, you, you look forward to it. You're praying for this time, this time together. You're, you're looking forward to it eagerly. You're praying for it. You're, you're expectant about what's going to happen in worship. See, it's about priorities, really. And Jesus here is dealing, he's dealing with this whole issue. By, 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 by narrowing in, really, on the issue of priorities. He says, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Simplify. Mary has chosen the good portion. Now, it's fascinating. When Jesus deals with the issue of anxiety and worry in the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with it in exactly the same way. By talking about priorities. Matthew 6 and verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, Jesus is telling these people, look, the stuff that you worry about, it's stuff. It's just stuff. That's exactly what he's saying to Martha here. He says, Martha, the stuff that you're worried about is stuff. God says, you focus on me, and I'll take care of that stuff. <laughs> That's exactly how Jesus concludes in this section on worry in Matthew 6. He says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God 
above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom, for life. You are the author of life and you know how life works best. And so we thank you for the wisdom of our Savior. We, we pray that you would help us to apply it. We pray that you would help us to emulate the gentleness of Christ that we see here, the compassion, sensitivity of Christ that we see in this text. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to take your wisdom about about avoiding a, a performance trap. Lord, help us to constantly go back to the gospel and understand that we're accepted by you based on what Christ has already done. Help us to live life under the banner. It is done. It is finished. Which really just frees us to, to go out and, and serve you, not in order to try to gain your approval or acceptance, but because we already are accepted by you. And Father, we pray that you would deliver us from yearning for the approval of others, the world's approval. Give us a Godward focus. Help us to live our lives for an audience of one. We pray that you would give us your wisdom about priorities in our life. Father, we pray that we would make it a priority both privately and publicly to be people of worship. That we would understand that above all that we are your child and that you desire to spend time with us that we're not, so that we're not trying to do life alone anymore. We're doing it with you. And that even as we work, we're worshiping even as we serve you, we're, we're seeking you. We're in communion with you. So we just continue to reflect for a few moments. Where are you today in a relationship with God? Maybe you would say, well, I don't know if I have one yet. We would love to come alongside and just share with you. We'd love to do that today. We'll, we'll, we'll be here. We're here for you. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're hearing God speaking to you about being a part of this church family as we do life together. We'd love to welcome you. If there's a need in your life that you'd like to pray with a brother or sister about today before you leave, we'd love to do it. So, Father, we give you now this time of decision. Lord, would your spirit cause us to make the definitive commitments that you're calling us to make right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.